Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, God bless you. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. We are in a teaching series now called How to Be a Better Heretic. And we're looking at some of the teachings of the scriptures and of church history that at at one point or another tried to lay out, remember I said the Bible sets out cautionary tape for us. Bible is cautionary tape and the Bible is a treasure map. It leads us towards beautiful and rewarding and abundant life. And it also sets off cautionary tape and says, don't go this way. This isn't healthy. You're not going to like it. And we've been looking at cautionary tape that the Bible lays out and that in the history of the church, Christians have reaffirmed and said, don't go this way. This isn't healthy. You're not going to like it. And yet some of those things that were taped off are alive and well in the church today. And so if you listen to our podcast last week, if you weren't here uh, on site, but we're listening to reallife.la, you know that uh, last week we looked at the, the heresy that has been around for centuries, that somehow your body is second class to your soul, that your body is dirty or broken, or it's a source of, of, of sin and uncleanness in the world, and somehow your soul is pure. And we looked at the fact that that is a uh, that is a, uh, a heresy that's been around and still floats around in the church. Today, I want to go to the other end of the spectrum and look at the possibility, the, uh, the, the idea that has floated around, that, that, your, that your body, that the material world, is all there is. That souls aren't there. That there either is no God behind the material world, or there's a God up there who created it all and started it off and then kind of left it alone and doesn't transcend. That the supernatural is not real. And that's a teaching that existed at the time the scriptures were written. Uh, and obviously the scriptures speak in a very different direction. That's an idea that has cropped up at various times in history. And the church has laid off cautionary tape and said, hey, the world is more than just particles bouncing around. There's something mysterious to the world. There's something supernatural to the world. Uh, And certainly as we look across the landscape of American society today, and even in the church, there's sort of an an enlightenment rationalism that says that uh, the material world is really all you you can know, or or maybe all there is. And and I want to look at the way the Bible lays out cautionary tape against those kinds of ideas today. So take a minute and pray with me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us into life with you. Thank you that you are supernatural and that you reveal yourself in this physical world and show us who you are and what you mean for our lives. We ask that today you'd open our hearts and our minds to your words uh, by the power of your spirit, uh, that we might receive your word within us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So when we talk about this, this idea or this philosophy that, that the material world is all there is or all that can be known and that God doesn't intervene in it if God is there at all is, is actually a, a, an idea that I've toyed with at various points in my life. <clears throat> I remember driving with my dad from uh, my little high school town in Texas to UC Berkeley where I was going to college. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat on a Texas freeway and thinking that right now there's a kid in Baghdad who's 
Muslim because he's grown up in a Muslim family and a Muslim culture, and he's headed off to his next stage of life as a Muslim. And there's a kid in New Delhi who grew up in a Hindu family and a Hindu culture, and he's headed off to the next stage of his life as a Hindu. And here I am in a Christianized culture and a Christian family, headed off to college as a Christian. And maybe the only reason I think the way I do is because of where I grew up. And that's not a good reason. And I sort of tossed my faith out the window on a Texas freeway as I headed off to college and began to toy with the idea, well, maybe there's not a God. Maybe I've got this wrong. Uh, you know, is, is there any basis for believing that there is a God? And that was one of the most important questions I explored in my college years. There were other people exploring it too, and I, and I saw different voices speaking into the issue in kind of strange ways. I remember talking to this woman who was also a college student uh, midway through my college years, and she was an atheist. She said, there's no God at all. I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I, we, we talked back and forth for a while, and I said, do you mean to tell me that you believe that all there is in the universe is physical matter, that that is all there is, that it all boils down from from biology to chemistry to physics, and it's all just particles and waves, and that's it. And she said, well, no. She said, uh, she said, there was this time where my friends and I were having a seance. We were trying to summon the dead. And she goes, I swear we weren't smoking anything. And as we did it, I could see faces of people in the candlelight. Now, here she was, an atheist, didn't believe in God or souls or anything else, but she believed that there was something beyond the physical world. She was wrestling with the question of what is there beyond the physical world, like I was, but from a very different vantage point. I remember when I was a, first a pastor in my 20s, and I, and I started at a church uh, that uh, had some sort of strange ideas about God. There was a, a history of strange teaching in that church that I had not realized when I signed up for the job. And I remember teaching an adult Sunday school class on a Sunday morning and asking this, this group of adults who went to church, who had been going to church for a long time, if this week archaeologists found Jesus' skeleton, and they were absolutely sure it was Jesus' skeleton, that Jesus had died and was buried, and they found it, and without somehow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they knew it was his skeleton, would you come to church next Sunday? And unilaterally, everybody in the class said yes. And they said things like, well, I like the people here, or this is just what I do. One guy said, I come because I like the donuts. <laughs> but the, the real answer to that question should be no. If, if they find Jesus' skeleton this week, this is all a joke. This is all a horrible mistake that's been going on for 2,000 years. If all there is is a physical universe, faith is a waste of time. If God is somebody who started up the universe and then has nothing to do with it, we really don't need a lot of this. The, the idea that there's just a physical universe, that God's either not there or only distantly there, is an idea that's floated around for centuries. And, and I want to look at what the Bible has to say about that and what Christians have said throughout history uh, about that. Let's start out in the Gospel of John chapter 10 and look at some of the teachings of Jesus and look at what he had to say about the supernatural in the face of people who doubted his miracles. This is in the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 22. 
Then came the festival of dedication. That is what we call Hanukkah today. And Hanukkah, if you don't know this, is a holiday that celebrates a supernatural event. It celebrates a time where the, the Jewish temple had sort of been ransacked and the, the, the temple candle had only enough oil to burn, burn for one day, but it burned for eight days. Supernaturally, it stayed lit for eight days. And that's why they light the, light the menorah. So the, 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 uh, then came the festival of dedication, a festival that celebrated a supernatural event at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in, so, uh, in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, the Jews, were there, the Jews were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Right? Jesus says, look, I've been doing miracles. You've seen this happen. Where do you think this is coming from? I can't testify better than this. Look at the supernatural events that are happening right in front of your eyes. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. That's because when he says, I and the Father are one, he is identifying himself with God. And in the, in the Jewish faith, that's blasphemy. Uh, blasphemy is different than heresy. Heresy is a false teaching. Blasphemy is saying something so offensive that it carried the death penalty. If you go back and look at Leviticus 24, the death penalty was laid out for saying certain things. And Jesus has just said, I and the Father are one. We are the same thing. We are united. Not just, I really like him and he really likes me. We are the same thing, which is a way of saying, I am God. I've heard uh, Muslims in our modern day world say, you Christians don't even know how to read your Bible. Jesus never said, I am God, because he never utters that sentence. But that's exactly what he's saying here, and that's exactly why they pick up stones to stone him. He has blasphemed by claiming to be God. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these do you stone me? Right? If I can do these miracles, how could you condemn me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Um, now, Jesus is going to use some, some legal fancy footwork here. Um, in verses 34 to 36, he's going to take a passage from the Hebrew Scriptures in which the Hebrew scriptures refer to a group of people as gods. And he's going to say, look, according to the, the letter of the law, I'm only doing something that's already in the Bible. And you can't ignore any part of the Bible. So you can't condemn me for blasphemy for doing something that the scriptures have already done. If you don't follow this argument, it's not the heart of the issue here. He's just getting around the, the Pharisees wanting to condemn him for, for blasphemy. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law I have said you are gods. And that's a reference to Psalm 82 that refers to a group of people a little bit mockingly as gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be set aside, you can't take part of the Bible and ignore it, what about the one, and now he's talking about himself, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? 
Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. That, that's just a legal argument getting around their accusation of blasphemy. But now he's got to get back to the heart of what he wants to talk about, which is the fact that he's doing miracles in front of them, and they're still asking him who he is. They're completely unconvinced by the supernatural. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you, you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus rests his identity on his ability to do supernatural works. He says, the fact that I can do miracles, which he calls the works of the Father, the fact that I can do that should be sufficient to convince you that I am who I say I am. The supernatural is integral to Jesus' identity, and you can't have Jesus without it. This is of critical importance because historically there was a break in the history of the church where Christians embraced Jesus and the supernatural together. And in our modern world, there are groups of people who try to cling to some form of Jesus as a moral teacher and set the supernatural aside because it seems too ridiculous by modern standards. They want to have a, a physical universe with maybe a God who started it up, but nothing supernatural, nothing that, that calls people to actually believe that God can intervene in the world. This historically is called deism. Deism is the name of this, this heresy, this false faith. The idea that maybe there's a God up there somewhere who started everything off, but he does not intervene. He doesn't get involved. There are no miracles. Uh, we don't have to uh, be suspicious that, that maybe God can, can intervene and help. We, we shouldn't go around pl praying for healing because God doesn't do that kind of thing. We're off the hook for trusting in any of that. That's a false teaching uh, that, that erupted in the modern world. This is how it came about. In the, in the 16th century, there was a, a division in the church where uh, a German uh, thinker, realized that the Roman Catholic Church had strayed far away from the Bible. And he began to write against the Catholic Church. And they kicked him out. And he started his own church. His name was Martin Luther, and it became known as the Lutheran Church. He started his own church. And, and that then grew, and, and, and the European nations ended up eventually in war at war with one another between the countries that wanted to be Catholic and the countries that wanted to be Lutheran or Protestant, as they're called. And they, they literally ended up in bloody 30-year battles with each other, which was not really over religion. It was really over power. Who gets to be in charge? And after watching all this terrible bloodshed, the intellectuals in Europe said, hold on a second, if this is the best that the followers of Jesus can produce. If they produce crusades against the Muslims and inquisitions in which they're torturing people if they don't convert to Christianity, and now civil war in which they're shedding each other's blood and tearing Europe apart with war, if that's what Christians produce, maybe there's something better out there. Maybe we don't need to found all of our thought and society on religion, because it's a mess. Maybe we should just found it all on reason. And this is what we call the Enlightenment. This is a significant shift away from the foundations of Scripture and church and faith towards a society founded on principles of reason largely without religion. 
So in the 18th century, you have a guy named David Hume, a Scottish intellectual, writing books that say miracles never happened. I mean, this kind of writing would have never gone, uh, would have never happened in the Middle Ages, right? For centuries, people would have been afraid to say things like this. And he is writing books about the fact that you should not believe in miracles, even if you see one with your own two eyes. He says you still don't have good enough evidence to believe in them. And, and, and as, as, the, as the world turned and society evolved, increasingly the the academies turned towards the physical sciences, which seemed so much more tame and dependable than religious thought. And as technology boomed, as the Industrial Revolution happened, people said, look, the physical sciences produce good things. They produce good technology that makes life easier. Religion was a mess. Let's not go back to that. And at the end of the 18th century, Thomas Jefferson is reading the works of people like David Hume. And Thomas Jefferson actually was not a Christian. There's, a, there's misunderstandings about this. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed in a God who started up the universe, got it all running, and then never intervened in it. He produced his own version of the Bible that you can buy at booksellers now uh, called the Jefferson Bible, in which he went through the story of Jesus and removed all the miracles removed all the supernatural because he wanted Jesus who was a good moral teacher and nothing else. And that's a false faith. That's not Christianity. That's not even close. That's deism. And so it is commonplace in American society today for people to say, yeah, I believe maybe there's a God. And what they mean is there was something that started it all up, but now it's done. And I don't day in and day out, look for that God to have any real interaction with my life. If anything, he makes me feel a little bit better, but he doesn't do anything. And that's a heresy. That's a false faith. And it's commonplace not only in American society, it's commonplace in the church. People who sit and worship week in and week out, in the privacy of their own hearts, sit there thinking, yeah, maybe there's a God, but that's as far as this is going. I want us to pause for a minute, and I want us to think about what we gain and what we lose by saying there is no supernatural. There is no God who intervenes in the world. Jesus, in the text we just read in John 10, says, look, if you, if you don't believe me, look at the works I'm doing. Look at the supernatural miracles that I'm doing, and tell me what that says about my identity. Let's look at what happens when we say, yeah, yeah, that's not for me. I don't, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't, I don't pray for miracles because they don't happen. You lose three things. Well, you lose two things and you're left with one thing. You, you lose meaning in life. You, you lose morality in life. And all you're left with is mystery. All you're left with is, is a, a mess of mysteries. You, you're, you're left with uh, mysteries of, of everything that has come to be doesn't really seem to have purpose. If there is no God at all, how did the universe just come to be out of nothing? I mean, there wasn't empty space. There was literally nothing, and then it came to be. And, and out of inanimate matter came life. And scientists have not been able to explain how that happened. And you may have heard in your sophomore biology class in high school that if you shoot electricity into chemicals, somehow amino acids form, and those are the building blocks of life. That study, that, that theory has been absolutely debunked. Scientists are mystified by the idea that 
life arose from inanimate matter. And then out of life, you got consciousness, which again has no explanation. We don't know how consciousness even works, much less why it came to be. We could all just be amoeba. There's no reason why minds came to be. And then out of consciousness, it's hard to explain morality and how morality came to be. If, if, if there's no God interacting in the universe, if it's all just even just blind evolution without God's intervention, there's all kinds of mystery surrounding how the world is the way it is. And, and you're just not going to get good answers to those questions. And then on top of that, we lose meaning. We lose meaning in life if, if there is no transcendent interactive God. Because what we are is, as I said a few weeks ago in another sermon, we're, we're like passengers on a plane that's in a nosedive towards the ground, and we're just trying to make the best of it. We're ordering food. We're having good conversation with the person sitting next to us. We're just trying to enjoy ourselves. But in the end, it's all a waste. And Jesus offers us a parachute. He says, I can get you off of this, this strictly physical entity that's going to cease to exist, and I can give you eternal life. My sheep know my voice. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And those who reject that say, I'm just going to stay on the plane and enjoy it as long as it lasts. We, we lose meaning when we lose the supernatural. Or again, uh, here's, a, here's a modern parable of, of what we lose. Um, there's a, an ancient Greek play called Pygmalion in which a sculptor ca carves a sculpture and then he falls in love with it and then it comes alive. Well, let's, let's do a modern version of Pygmalion. Imagine a computer programmer designs uh, an animated robot that is so lifelike that he falls in love with it, right? Creates this robot that, that becomes his, his girlfriend and his wife. He falls in love with it, talks with it, uh, talks about the meaning of life with it uh, and whatnot. And now, think about what's going on in that robot's mind, quote-unquote mind. Ones and zeros. That, that robot is not having first-person conscious experience. It is ones and zeros processing input and output. At the end of his life, all he's had is chemical, interaction, chemical reactions in his brain and interactions with a, a non-living thing that is not in any way in love with him. He's had the illusion of meaning without actually doing anything meaningful. And if there is no God, that's what we're left with. You are a bunch of particles bouncing around as surely as ones and zeros in a, in a hard drive. And when life is over, all those interactions, all those, those chemical interactions, all those particle interactions, all that will come to nothing. In the end, life has lost its meaning. From the ooze we came and to the ooze we return. And all of this that we call life has just been an accident. We, we lose meaning when we lose God. And we lose morality when we lose God. Now, I, I know there are all kinds of atheists out there who say, no, I can be a good person. And sure, you can for a while. But there's nothing that obligates you to be a good person when you have no God in the end. I can live meaningfully because I know where I came from. God designed me with a purpose. And I can live morally because I know that in the end of my life, I'm going to stand in front of God's throne, and he's going to hold me accountable for how I lived my life. Because I know where I'm going, because I know there's a God there to whom I will answer in the end, I have obligation to live rightly. But without God, what you're left with is 
a bunch of social interactions that you have evolved to carry on. And there's no reason why those obligations that you feel, those moral impulses that you feel, should in any way obligate you. Because your moral impulses are just part of an evolutionary train that could have gone, could have gone differently. Think about all the moral systems that exist in the animal kingdom. Think about sharks. Sharks' moral code is eat whatever you want. You could have evolved in that direction and just been the, the horrible meat-eating predator of the sea, right? Uh, there, are, there are animals that kill their own young for fear of competition, including chimpanzees, which share 98.8% of human DNA. They, they will sometimes kill their own young to cut off competition. If you're a parent of a teach teenager, you can still feel some of the, that DNA inside of you, right? But don't, don't act on that, right? Our, our moral impulses it, without God have just evolved to be what they are, and they could have evolved in another direction that would have been no less moral than the ones we have. There are species like praying mantises and black widows where the female in the species kills the male. That makes for a whole different kind of marriage counseling. Um, you, the, the moral impulses that you feel without God are arbitrary. They're actually, they feel, they feel right. They feel like there's, there's moral uh, strength to them, but they're just an accident of evolution that could have gone in another direction. So without God, if, if all there is is a physical universe, we, we lose meaning, we lose morality, and all we're left with is mystery. But if God is really there, all of this is returned to us. If God is really there, we are designed for meaningful life. We, we were made with a purpose. God started me out in the beginning and said, I, I made you to be a being of love. God is love, 1 John, and we are made in God's image, Genesis 1. And so we are beings of love. And we find meaning and purpose when we enter into true living interactions with other people in which we love them and care for them and give to them generously and find purpose in life. It's not good enough to love a, a robot. Uh, and you might think that that's a, a silly option to discuss. But I'd encourage a number of guys out there right now to count up how many hours they spent with their phones and their game consoles this week and then count up how many hours they spent with their wives. I'm not saying that you're in love with robots. I'm just saying that you are in love with robots, right? And that's not meaningful life. It's not that playing video games is sinful. It's that it's a waste of time. Because God made you to be a being of love that has the power to go out and transform other people's lives, not just in this world, but for eternity. God has empowered you to go out and love people in such a significant way that they turn towards him and find their meaning in Jesus as well. God has sent you out with a treasure map in this world. The Bible is cautionary tape, and it's a treasure map. And treasure maps are just fun. And part of the fun and joy of this life is pursuing the treasure map of listening to God's interactive, transcendent calling and living lives of meaning in which we introduce other people to him. With God, we have meaning again. With God, we have morality. I now know where I'm going. I, I know I'm going to stand in front of the God who made me to be a being of love, and I'm going to be accountable for my life. What did I do with 
what I heard about Jesus? And what did I do with Jesus' teachings? How did I carry those out? Did I live a gracious and loving and caring life? Did I live generously or did I live selfishly? Because, because now I have foundations for all of my ethical impulses. I now have obligation, reason to stick to them, reason to follow what I know is the right thing to do. I get meaning back, I get morality back, and there's actually still mystery, but it's a different kind of mystery. I, I know that the universe was created. I know where it came from. I know why life came to exist, it's because God created his children to be. I know why I have consciousness and moral impulses. All that makes sense with God as the creator and the one who interacts with this world. There's still mystery, but it's of a different kind. There's a mystery that you experience when you awaken first thing in the morning or when you feel this tug at your heart and your mind in the middle of the day and you have to pause and you suddenly have the sense that you are not alone. You suddenly have the sense that you are walking through this world with someone else. And that, that thing out there, that person out there, absolutely recklessly loves you. Loves you to the core of your being. The mystery that we then live with is what it looks like to follow him. And he doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen to us in a, our lives. He just promises us that we're going through life with him. I'm the shepherd, and the sheep know my voice. Nobody can snatch them out of my hands. I give them eternal life, and they follow me. That is the mystery of following the treasure map that Jesus has laid out for us. And in the end, treasure maps are just a lot of fun. So, this false teaching that circulates around in churches and society today, that the world is just physical, that God is either not there or if he is, he is non-interactive. That is not a biblical teaching. That is not the way of Jesus. And you can't have Jesus and a physical world without the supernatural. Jesus came into the world to interact with us, to transcend, to cross the universe from heaven to earth and translate God's voice into a human voice. And he is waiting for us to listen to him, to pursue him, and to invite him into our daily lives. Let's do so now. Jesus, we thank you that in you we have so much more than just the drudgery of making our way through a physical world, trying to sustain ourselves and survive. Instead, we get to live with the, the beauty and the mystery of a treasure map. We get to go through this life knowing that you walk beside us, that you hold us close, that you have the power to intervene and interact. And we pray for the gift of faith, that you would implant in our hearts that seed of faith that would help us to believe 
that, ha- that would help us to believe that the, the miraculous is not just a, a story from 2,000 years ago, but your power to interact in the world today. We ask that in our church, you'd bless us with a, a deeper sense of your presence. For every one of us, Jesus, cause us to pause in those moments of the day where we sense that you're close and seek to listen to the voice of our shepherd, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.